Please go ahead and make your way back to your seat. <clears throat> you have a seat there. And you can go ahead and grab a Bible. Um, if you don't have one, there's some on the back table. We'd love for you to have one. You can. Pastor Steve is holding up one of those Bibles. We'd love for you to have that. When you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 32. We'll be there in just a few minutes. Mm-hmm. That's a nice shirt, Aaron. So again, I want to welcome you all here. My name is Nathan Smith. I'm one of three pastors. And it is my great joy to have the privilege of preaching from God's Word for you today. We are going through some of the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 32 today. And um, as I was studying this week, preparing to preach this message, I had my headphones on. I was listening to Spotify. And uh, I am either too cheap or too thrifty, depending on your perspective, to pay for Spotify. So uh, I get the ads. And so while I'm sitting there listening and uh, studying this man's voice comes on, and uh, it's a very kind of soothing but confident, just a hint of a, of a British accent, and he says, who would have thought that the key to inner peace could be so simple? Take some me time to take a deep dive into, has anybody heard this? A Lego set. Experience the joy of a rewarding challenge at lego.com. Build something you love and find your flow with Lego sets. Adults, welcome. <clears throat> now, I'm not, uh, I, I may not be the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I am pretty sure that Legos are not going to provide the key to inner peace. Um, I think that any parent who's ever had to arbitrate a dispute between a couple of children over Legos knows that that's a lie. Anyone who has impaled their foot upon a Lego in the middle of the night knows that there is no peace to be found in Legos. But this is really, this is the marketing strategy today, right? It's not that, oh, we're just selling you uh, deodorant or shampoo or a car or whatever. It's no, we're, we're selling you inner peace. We're, we're selling you joy. We're selling you security. We're selling you meaning in your life. And this is uh, something that, unfortunately, we fall for all too often. We buy into these things. We buy these products knowing, I know it's not really that, but actually I want a little bit of what they're selling. I think maybe if I get that new car, it, it actually will help me to feel more fulfilled. And kids might be like, if I got that new Lego set, I would have inner peace. I need it for Christmas. In this psalm, Psalm 32, David is trying to kind of sell us something as well. What David's trying to sell us on is confession. That's the product that he's selling. And, and he uses a similar strategy to uh, some of these marketing techniques, only David's is actually based in reality. That's why it's, it's uh, in Scripture. It's God's Word. It's actually true. David's saying, who would have thought that the key to inner peace could be so simple? It comes through confession. It is simple, but it's not easy. And so 
Uh, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read Psalm 32. Psalm 32, and this is written by David, but this is the word of the Lord. He writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. God, we thank you for speaking to us through your prophet David. We thank you for your mercy, your gentle mercy and your severe mercy. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us to respond to your word, to respond to your mercy with faith, with confession when it's necessary, Lord, and it is so often necessary. We confess this morning that we, we can't even hear your word rightly unless you illuminate it to us and speak to us. So we ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Thank you. <clears throat> so you may have noticed as uh, we read through that psalm that there is a repeated word, a word that you may have heard, but you probably don't know what it means, and that word is selah. And the reason that you don't know what it means is because no one knows what it means exactly. It is just a transliteration of a Hebrew word. Uh, it's not translated, but it is merely uh, put into English letters so that we can read it. So we know the sound of it. We don't know what it means. Some people think it's a musical term that David included, like here's where the sweet guitar solo goes in here. Uh, some people think it's just, it means stop and meditate on what you just heard. But no one knows for sure. But one thing that we can know is that these... Um, this word selah, it divides up the psalm for us into different sections. And so we can at least say that those selahs indicate something about how David saw these verses fitting together. And so I think it can be helpful, even though we don't know for sure what they mean, I think it can be helpful to look at a psalm in those different sections. And here in Psalm 32, the sale is divided into four different sections. And so <clears throat> here's how I see this dividing up. Uh, verses 1 through 4 
We see the prerequisite of confession. Then we have a Selah. And then verse 5, the paradox of confession. Verses 6 and 7 show us the protection of confession. And verses 8 through 11 uh, allow us to hear from the professor of confession. And the way that I see all these fitting together and, and communicating one message is in this way. This is the sermon summary. A blessed life is the fruit when confession is the root. Or a blessed life is the fruit when confession is the root. And I made that rhyme and I started all of those with P so that when you leave here today and you go in the car, kids, and your parents ask you, what was the sermon about? You can say, a blessed life is the fruit when confession is the root. And maybe you'll remember some of these P words that we're going to talk about. Prerequisite, paradox, protection, and professor. Let's get into verses 1 through 4 in this first section where we see a prerequisite. That confession is a prerequisite. A prerequisite is... Uh, not only a word that's hard to say, but it's also a word that means something that must come before. Something that must come before something else. And in this instance, um, when I say the prerequisite of confession, I mean that it must come before something. And what it must come before is forgiveness and blessing. And I mean that confession is the prerequisite. It is what must come before forgiveness, and blessing. So confession, then, is a prerequisite to blessing. And this word blessed or blessed that we see in uh, the first couple of verses of Psalm 32, that's a more kind of exuberant word than what you might think of when you read that word. Um, a lot of translators, in fact, most of the commentators that I looked at said, for us, this word would probably be better translated as happy. So happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven, and so on. And so what I, I think that David's main point in this whole psalm is that confession is a prerequisite of true and lasting happiness. Or to say it another way, a blessed life is the fruit when confession is the root. And so forgiveness being... Uh, it is a prerequisite to happiness. Confession is a prerequisite to forgiveness. And to say that differently, just, just to be clear, what I believe God is communicating through this psalm is that confession must come before forgiveness, and forgiveness must come be before happiness. Confession, then forgiveness, then happiness. So no confession, no forgiveness, and no forgiveness, no happiness. And David learned this the hard way, and he's demonstrating for us through this psalm. He's giving us a testimony of how he learned this. And so look at the text. Verses 1 and 2 talk about this blessing. And then verses 3 and 4, David explains how he knows what that blessed life is like. And so um, the, and the connection between blessing and confession. He starts off really with his conclusion in those first two verses. And so um, we're going to look at verses three and four and then go back to the first two verses in a few minutes. But he says that without confession, there is no blessing. 
And the way that he demonstrates this is he says, uh, I've experienced the opposite of a blessed life. I know what it's like to not confess and so to not be blessed. And he says in verse 3, I kept silent. And so there's no, he doesn't use the word confession in these first four verses, but he talks about the opposite of confessing, which is keeping silent. He says, I kept silent. And what did he keep silent about? Well, it refers back to verses one and two. He kept silent about his sin. And so this, he's saying, I didn't confess my sin. And again, he knows that it's that forgiven person in verses one and two, who is the most blessed, most happy person in the world because he had experienced the opposite. Because it says in verse three, four, that's because, here's how I know this, because when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I was miserable. I was the most miserable person you can imagine. My bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. I was miserable because I kept silent. And uh, one of the things that I really loved about studying this psalm this week was that I, uh, as I dug into the Hebrew, the original language, it just really struck me how earthy a lot of the words that David uses in this Psalm were. Um, you would expect that. David was a man of the earth. He spent most of his life outside, first as a shepherd and then running from Saul, hiding in caves. Um, but David uses very concrete words, and these, these words have been, the metaphorical meaning has been translated into English, but when you look at the original meaning, some of it is, is really telling and, and helpful. So in verse 3, the word that's translated silent that word originally meant to scratch or to plow. Um, and so like some crops can be planted by taking a, a plow, plowing out a furrow, turning the earth over, putting the seeds in, and then plowing back the other way to turn that soil back over and bury those seeds and plant them. And <clears throat> so I think that what David is, is trying to give us a picture of here is that he's saying, when I kept silent, I was plowing my sins under. I was trying to bury them, in other words, trying to hide them. And we see how that worked out for him. Verse 3 again, he says, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And that word groaning, that's not like just a, uh, like a little whimper, like, oh, it's so bad, I can't handle it. The same word is used for the roaring of lions in Scripture. He was groaning like this is the cry of ultimate suffering. This is more intense even than Wesley in the pit of despair. He's screaming out with a groan because of how badly he is suffering. And notice in verse 4 where he locates the source of his suffering. He says, day and night, your hand was upon me. Your hand was heavy upon me. He recognized that God was pressing down upon him with his almighty hand. And the ESV says that when God put this pressure upon him, that his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And the, that word translated strength there, again, it's a very concrete kind of idea. It refers to moisture or the sap of a tree. So, 
literally that phrase would be, my life juices were turned into the drought of summer. As God's pressing down upon David, he feels like the life is being squeezed out of him. Have you ever seen one of those uh, old-fashioned cider presses? Anyone? Anyone? Maybe well, a couple people. Well, you got a basket. <clears throat> I won't describe the whole thing, but there's a basket. You put a cloth in it. You put apples in there, and you cover it up, and then you crank the press down. It presses down upon that, and there's slats in the basket that let the juice run out. So as the, the cider press presses down, the juices are just flowing out as those apples are crushed. And I think that this is something of the picture that David is trying to give to us, that God is putting the pressure on him, pressing down, because David has unconfessed sin in his life, sin that he's trying to actually bury, cover up. God is putting the pressure on and David feels like it's just squeezing the life out of him. And what he's feeling, uh, we don't know if this is actual physical anguish, suffering. It seems like maybe it is. It might be the, the, the pangs of his conscience that he's feeling. So mental and emotional, and emotional suffering that he feels like his inner life is drying up. It, it may be both. I think it likely is both. But what he's making clear here is that as he tried to cover up his sin, God was pressing down on him and squeezing him so that he felt like his life was going to end. Have you ever felt like that when you tried to, um, tried to cover up your sin, tried to bury your sin, tried to hide something? Kids, maybe, maybe you've done something that you knew was wrong and you knew you were going to get in trouble for it and you tried to hide it from your parents and you just felt like, oh, I don't know. I don't want to tell them, but I can't not tell them because I just feel terrible. It just burns in your conscience. And it may be that someone here, whether child or adult, is feeling that way right now. If that's the case, then guess what? That pressure, that, that pain that you feel from God, that's actually God's grace. It's just a tiny foretaste of the crushing weight of God's eternal wrath against you for your sin. And it may feel like that he's going to destroy you. But if you're still feeling it, it means that you're still alive, that he's giving you grace. He's giving you time. He's giving you time to confess. And as we move on into verse 5, we see the paradox of confession. The paradox of confession. The paradox of confession is that it's only by uncovering our sin that our sin can be truly covered. Only by uncovering our sin can our sin be truly covered. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. That's what makes it a paradox. It sounds contradictory, but it's not. It's one of the beautiful paradoxes of the gospel. And you won't really understand why this is a beautiful paradox, and you won't really believe that God's crushing hand on you is, is actually grace unless you first understand what sin is. And so let's go back and look at verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, David uses three different Hebrew terms for 
sin. They're translated as uh, transgression, sin, and iniquity. Transgression means revolt or rebellion. Sin is an offense. And iniquity is perversity or depravity. Transgression, sin, iniquity. These are three facets of that, this evil that is sin. So this is what your sin is. It is you rebelling against God. It's you personally offending God as if you're spitting in his holy face. It's you also perversely twisting God's good purposes for your evil designs. And this is what David came to realize through this relentless pressure that God had been putting on him. He came to recognize his sin for the evil that it truly was. And he finally responds to this pressure. And he has described sin as this this threefold evil. It's transgression, it's sin, it's iniquity, it's revolt, it's an offense, it's, it's rebellion. And so he makes a threefold confession. We see this in verse 5. It says that he acknowledged his sin. That is, he, he made it known. He said, God, I'm guilty. I've been trying to hide it, Lord. And then it says, I did not cover my iniquity. He had been trying to cover it. Now he says, no longer. Instead of trying to bury it, he's uncovering it. He's, he's bringing it up. He's bringing his sin into the light. And he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And this word that's translated confess is is interesting. Its literal meaning is to hold out or to throw. So the sin, David's saying, that that, that he has been trying to, to cover up, to bury, he realized that he better dig all of it up, every bit of that filth, to dig it up, uncover it, and then hold it out to God. Put it on, on the ground in a pile before God. To throw it down before God. That's what true confession is. It's this threefold approach to our sin. It's acknowledging our sin to God. It's uncovering our sin fully before God. And then it's holding it out to God for him to deal with instead of trying to deal with it on our own. And here's where the paradox of confession comes in. Look at the last phrase of verse 5. This is the most incredible phrase in this whole psalm, that God looked at this rebellion, this offense, this perversion, and he forgave David. He says, I I confessed, I brought it all, all out into the open. And he says, God, you forgave the iniquity of my sin." what is forgiveness? We use that word a lot in the church. Well, the word translated as forgive here literally means lifted up, carried off, took away. So our whole pile of perverse rebellion against God, this, this filth, when we expose it willingly, when we dig it up and throw it on the ground before God, and that's all we can do with it, we can't get rid of it. I mean, you can, you can try to hide your sin, but it isn't hidden from God. You can try to hide it from other people, and you may be able to hide it from other people, but your sin is like, in that Edgar Allan Poe story, the, the telltale heart, it'll just drive you crazy. 
You think it's hidden, and maybe it is hidden. Maybe no one knows about it. But it'll just drive you nuts. It will weigh on your conscience. It will burden you down. It may even affect you physically. And you can't get rid of it on your own. You can't clear your own conscience. But just as David describes sin as this threefold evil in verses 1 and 2, he celebrates God's threefold dealing with our sin. So in verses 1 and 2, he says this transgression, this rebellion, it was forgiven. This sin, this personal offense against God, it's been covered. This iniquity, this perversion of God's good design, it's no longer counted against you. When God forgives sin, we throw it on the ground when we confess, but when God forgives, he lifts it up, he carries it off, he covers it up. He takes care of it for good. This is the paradox of confession, that when we uncover our sin, God covers it over. But before that, before forgiveness, before the blessing that comes from forgiveness, there's hard work. Look back again at verse 2. The end of verse 2, as David's describing this blessed man, he says, he's one in whose spirit there is no deceit. And the word that's translated deceit is often translated as slothful, lazy. And when it's translated as deceit, it's often used in combination with another word that means telling lies. And so uh, it seems like the idea in the Old Testament, when you see these two words together, is that telling lies is actively saying something that is false, actively saying something that's not true. But deceit is withholding what should be said, that it's a laziness, it's a slothfulness in speaking what is true. And in this case, it's a, uh, a laziness in saying what is true about sin. And so in verses 1 and 2, it's like David is saying, do you want to be blessed? Do you want to have true and lasting happiness now and forever? Well, one of the things that you must do is not be lazy, not be slothful about confessing your sin. It's only by uncovering our sin that our sin can be truly covered. That's the paradox of confession. And then verses 6 and 7, we see the protection of confession. He says, because of this, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. And I think in this context, when David says prayer, I don't think he's just kind of changing the subject all of a sudden. I think it only makes sense that he would be talking about the prayer of confession. And so at this point, we're, we're still listening in on David's conversation with God, right? We're just kind of eavesdropping. And David's saying, um, let everyone who is godly, that is, uh, the godly are are those who are seeking diligently to be in right relationship with you, God. Let, let them confess. This is, this is just logical. Because of who you are, because of this forgiving God that you are, because I experienced this myself, because I uncovered my sin, and instead of crushing me for it, you actually took your hand off. You forgave my sin because of who you are. Therefore, all those who are seeking to be in a right relationship with you should confess at a time when you may be found. And, and that 
phrase, I think, means now. What is the time that God may be found? Well, can he be found right now? Yes. This is the time when God may be found. Today is the day of salvation. I think what he means is we don't know how much time we have. We don't know when the wrath of God will fall upon this earth for its sin and judge all. Let's confess now. Now is the time that God may be found. Now is the time to confess. And sin, even as a Christian, it puts us under Uh, Rather, it separates us from the relational protection of God. It puts us under his severe hand of discipline. But confession, as we see in these verses, it brings us near to God, into his sheltering presence. This is the protection of confession. And David says, I know this from experience. He says, verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of joy. You're, you're a hiding place for me. And this isn't, uh, this isn't hiding in the case uh, or in the sense of like hide and go seek. It's a secret place where I'm going to go. This is hiding in the sense of protection. Like when we confess our sin, God blesses us with protection, with Safety. God becomes for us like a, a bunker that a soldier can go into when they're under heavy artillery fire. It becomes like a, like a storm cellar that someone can escape into when a tornado is sweeping over the plains. God is that kind of shelter for us. He's a hiding place for us. And David says, you preserve me from trouble. And the word for trouble is is like a, a tight, a narrow place, a place where you'd be squeezed, a place where you could be easily crushed. But David has confessed, and so he's saying, in this, in this place where I could be crushed, I'm not going to be crushed because God is surrounding me. He is protecting me. And God, instead of now being with his mighty hand, pressing down on me, crushing me, instead he's protecting me. He's using that awesome strength to protect me from being crushed by anything else. Confession is, it puts us in the place of great protection. In this last section, in verses 8 through 11, we see David putting on his, uh, his teacher's cap and Approaching us now as the professor of confession. David here is the professor of confession, and the class is Confession 101. So he's going to say, here's why you should confess. I'm going to tell you to confess. I've already demonstrated from you, for you from my own life why, but I'm going to tell you directly. So verses 8 and 9. And David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. This is where I'm getting the word professor. He's saying, I'm going to instruct you and teach you. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So David is saying, hey, I've just told you what happened to me. I want you to learn from my mistakes. Don't, don't be stubborn. When you know you've sinned, don't be like a stupid, stubborn mule who's obstinate and wants to go the opposite way from their master until they are, they are forced with a bit and a bridle 
and sometimes strong, strong words and, and uh, maybe a few sharp blows now and then. Don't be like that. Don't be stubborn like that. I've ex- David's saying, I've experienced the consequences of being stubborn. You're not going to like it. But this kind of stern, severe discipline is the way that God leads his stubborn children. So David's saying, don't be like that. Don't be stubborn. Be easily led. Be sensitive to how God is leading you. Be sensitive to your sin to be quick to confess it. And David gives, like all good teachers do, he gives motivation to his students. In verse 10, so why? If his students are saying, confession doesn't feel very good, it's kind of embarrassing, why would I confess? Well, he says, here's, here's why. Verse 10, because many are the sorrows, that's pains and afflictions, of the wicked. So this is a a negative kind of motivation. David, again, he's had a taste of that pain. He's had a taste of how God deals with the wicked. That's what he's describing in verses 3 and 4. And wicked means to be guilty of crime, to be condemned. It means deserving punishment. And when you try to hide your sin, you try to cover it up, your guilt doesn't go away. It remains until you are forgiven by God. And so when you deny your sin, you're putting yourself in this category of the wicked. And God will treat you as such until you confess your sin to him. And David's teaching here is simple. He says, you want to avoid a painful punishment or painful discipline from God? Confess your sin. Confess your sin because many are the sorrows of the wicked. Don't be wicked denying your sin. So that's the negative motivation he gives. But then there's also this positive motivation that he gives in the second half of verse 10. He says, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And one sense of the word trust is confides in. So I think David is still talking about confession here. And I think that's the theme that runs through this whole psalm. Steadfast love surrounds the one who confides in the Lord. Confide in God. Tell him your deepest, darkest secrets. That's what confession is. It's, it's, it's this saying, I'm not going to hide this, Lord. I'm going to trust you to deal with my sin. I'm going to hold it out. I'm going I'm to bring it out into the light. And I'm going to trust you to know me through and through completely and still love me. Trust in the Lord. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in, who confides in the Lord. Trust him to be merciful and forgiving because he is that kind of God. He is a merciful and forgiving God. So you can trust him to be that. His steadfast covenant love will surround you. He will protect you and bless you. And he will forgive your sins when you confess your sin to him in faith. But it's important that we understand how. 
how God forgives. Because that word forgive, I mentioned earlier, it means to lift up, to, to carry off, to take away. Well, how does God do that? Because God is holy, he can't and he won't just carry off our sin, set it aside somewhere. Remember, this is an offense, a trespass, a rebellion against a holy God. God would not be holy and just if he just set our sin aside and ignored it. But the word, when David talks about God forgiving his sin, the word for forgave, it's used to speak of what Jesus did in Isaiah 53. In verse 4, there's this beautiful section in Isaiah 53 talking about Jesus, the suffering servant. And it says here, surely he has borne, that's the same word as forgave, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The crushing hand of God that David got a taste of as it began pressing down on his life. That hand pressed down on Jesus until he was completely crushed for our iniquities. This is how David was forgiven. And it's the only way that anyone, any of us, can ever be forgiven by a holy God. That when Jesus was on the cross, he was God was taking our every rebellion, our every offense against him, our every perversion, and placing it on Jesus. Jesus bore the suffering that we deserved for our sins so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be blessed, that we could be protected from the wrath of God in Jesus. And the Apostle Paul tells us that the aim of Christ bearing our sin was to restore us into a blessed relationship with God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, restoring us by bearing our sins, restoring us to God. And this is what we remember, it's what we receive, it's what we celebrate anew every week as we take communion. And so today, if you know the forgiveness of God, if you've, if you've experienced it, if it is yours through the substitutionary work of Jesus, then I want you to consider verse 11 as you take communion today here in just a few minutes. Look at verse 11. As we think about the work of Christ on our behalf, that he was crushed for our sins, here's what our response should be. You should be glad. It says be glad. That means joyful. Be merry in the Lord. And he goes on to say, rejoice, O righteous. And I love this word that's translated rejoice. It means 
literally, to be spun around under the influence of joy. It means that you're so overwhelmed with joy that God would freely forgive you by the sacrifice of his son that it would spin you around. Rejoice. And these are actually uh, imperatives. They're commands. Be joyful. Rejoice. Be spun around with awe, with wonder, with joy at God's forgiveness. Do it. And this is the right response of the spirit-filled Christian to the forgiveness, to the blessing that are ours through Christ, that, that you don't have to hide your sin, that your sins have been borne up, carried away, and covered by God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is cause for us to be spun around, for us to rejoice. And remember, a, a blessed life is the fruit when confession is the root and joy is one of the gracious blessings that God gives to us when we confess our sin and it's borne by Jesus. Pastor C.H. Spurgeon says it beautifully. He says, Happiness is not only our privilege, but our duty. Truly, we serve a generous God since he makes it a part of our obedience to be joyful. How sinful are our rebellious murmurings How natural does it seem that a man blessed with forgiveness should be glad? Be glad in the Lord. And then as we sing, as we take communion, if it seems appropriate, anytime it's appropriate, obey this final command here in verse 11 and shout for joy. Our joy should find expression in joyful shouts. And I know that um, for most of us, including myself, that feels awkward. But hey, it's commanded here. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What? Okay, that was, that was, that was a little bit of a weak shout, but we'll take it. That's a start. This is something we have to learn, right? And all of this starts with confession. And confession is not easy. Confession is also something that we have to learn. We have to practice. And because it's not easy, uh, that's one of the reasons that we pray corporate prayers together. Our aim as pastors in praying corporately prayers of confession together is to teach us all together how to pray, to remind us of the importance, the necessity the ongoing necessity of confession is to practice together confessing. And so before we celebrate this forgiveness of God through communion today, we're going to pray a prayer of confession aloud. And so uh, I want to invite you to stand. And if this is if this is true for you, that you want to be in a right relationship with God, then I invite you to pray aloud this prayer of confession as I lead us. Heavenly Father, we confess to you now that we don't always count it a privilege to confess. Often we choose to ignore, minimize, or excuse our sin instead of facing it and facing you. This comes from our failure to embrace you as the all-knowing and always welcoming Father who loves us with a perfect love in Christ. 
We are rightly ashamed of our sin, but don't let that become a hindrance to worshiping you through confession. Please encourage our sincere confession by reminding us that confessing to you is a blessed privilege because it is the only way to have an intimate fellowship with you. You delight in a contrite heart. You give grace to the humble. You comfort those who mourn over their sin. And you are glorified by our genuine confession. So help us, we pray, to humbly acknowledge our sin before you as we trust you to forgive and cleanse us by the blood of Jesus, your Son. In his name, we confess and pray. Amen. Amen. And so this morning, for those of you who are trusting in Jesus for your forgiveness, who are believing that he bore your sin completely upon the cross, and if you've had that profession affirmed by a local church through baptism, then here in just a minute, I invite you to come and take communion. You'll exit to your left, come up to one of these tables in the front, and go back to your seat on the right. And this morning, I do encourage you to take some time to confess, as we have just done corporately, maybe individually. There's no, there's no rush in this time. You can take your time. Confess, but also be joyful, be thankful that here in this this bread and this juice we have represented for us the body and blood of Jesus Christ who bore your sin upon that cross. So rejoice in that forgiveness. Use this time as a time of worship, worship to your gracious God and Savior. And for those of you who uh, are not believing in Jesus, maybe you've never truly confessed anything. You've, you've realized that even this morning. We, we ask that you not come and receive communion. But I would invite and encourage you, even plead with you this morning, make this the day when you confess your sin truly before God. Even take this time, as others are coming up to take communion, to confess to God your sin to ask him for forgiveness because he is merciful. He is gracious. He loves to forgive sinners. Christ Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He came to save sinners. And if you want to talk to someone about that, I'll be up here in the front during the communion time. Um, You can grab one of the other pastors. Pastor Steve will be in the back. If you'd like to pray with either of us, talk with us, we would love to do that. Or you can fill out a connection card, drop it off in one of the boxes, and we would love to connect with you this week about that. But I'm going to pray, and then for those who should, please come and celebrate communion. God, we praise you for your grace. We praise you for your mercy. God, you you know everything anyway, and so how foolish of us that we would ever try to cover up our sin but I praise you that we don't have to. That you know us even better than we know ourselves. And even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Please lead us to greater joy this morning as we remember his sin-bearing sacrifice for us. Help us to rejoice. 
to give him more of the praise that he is due. We pray in his great name. Amen.